and I know actually that there are millions of Americans in this country that have no issue at all with what people do in their personal lives, whether they're gay, transgender, anything in between, but they draw a line at pushing an ideology onto children. And the difference between what's happening with kids now in school and when I was growing up, I had feelings of being transgender and uncomfortable with my body at a very young age, but it wasn't pushed on me. It wasn't validated by the world around me. I had to actually fight to be who I am. Now you have teachers fighting to make kids trans. And that's incredibly disturbing, not only to you know parents, I can only imagine, I'm not a parent myself, um, but to me as a trans person to see, you know, something that is so real to me be used in this political agenda. And it's disturbing. All, I think. All righty, people. Good evening. For those who were not watching 45 minutes ago, as I testified at the National Citizens Inquiry. Um, for those of you who don't know who Blair White is, and I, I made a joke, I'm not going to do the white thing all night because I don't know if everybody is as um, loves a family guy as much as I do. Uh, some of you might not know who Blair White is. Ah, oh, that dog. Hold on one second. Damn it. Sorry. Uh, I did not know who Blair White was until I knew who she is. Um, and when I first became aware of Blair's internet presence, I didn't know, you know, the the important thing i i came across blair's twitter feed and said oh this is a anti-feminist uh woman not knowing anything about about uh, about blair as a person and then when i learned all this it it puts uh certain things in perspective and highlights the crux of the national discussion that has hit the fore now um as relates to what is being referred to as the trans ideology, the trans debate. And you have someone like Blair who uh, is, and I know people are going to get mad. Like, where do you draw the distinction as, as referring to Blair as a she versus Dylan Mulvaney as a he? We're going to talk about this because it's good. It's, it's, I've been watching a lot of Blair's uh, podcasts. And I think, I, I think I've pinpointed a, a new point of understanding in my own mind. But uh, for those of you who don't know, we're, we're, we're being anti-feminist or critical of the feminist ideology, but being a biological male, born male, and one, add to the stream. How goes the battle? Hi, I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. I mean, people actually in, in the chat had been asking me for a while, and I, I, I don't know how long I've been following you for, but look, straight up, I, I, when I first discovered your Twitter feed, I didn't know the, the, the critical element of you. Uh, and just said, oh, look at this. There's someone who's who's surprisingly um, in line with the way I feel about the way the world has gone these days. But for, for people who don't know who you are, if you would, please, 30,000 foot overview before we delve into childhood and then into modern day madness. I guess the overview is that I am a YouTuber with my main channel that is just called Blair White, my name. I have a podcast called The Blair White Project on my second channel. You can just search that name. Um, and I guess I am an influencer TM. That's my technical uh, job title, but I do politics. I do social commentary. Uh, I talk a lot about trans stuff, which is funny because in my real life, I don't, but on the internet, I do. And uh, provide a perspective that I guess is more rare within the community in the sense that I am a Republican and I do have center-right beliefs. And so oftentimes people are taken aback by that. Uh, and so that's, I guess that's, that's who I am. All right. Awesome. And now, um, am, am I allowed to ask how old you are? Yeah, I'm 29. 29 years old. All right. Let's, let's, 
And by the way, the TM was trademark, right? There's not a there's not a term of the art that I don't know that is TM. No, I just I just meant like that's my official. Okay, X. So twenty. Let's back it all the way up to to childhood. Are you born okay. in America? Born and raised? Yes, I was born and raised in California, and I moved to Texas a few years ago, which was the best decision of my life. <laughs> uh, did you did you move during COVID? Yeah, I moved in the in the thick of it. I couldn't take any of the commie stuff anymore. All right, now, so born and raised in California, that already is going to raise some flags for some people out there, given you know life trajectory. Um, siblings, what did, what did your parents do? Yeah, so um, I don't like to talk too much about my family to give their identity up, but I have I come from a nuclear family, a mom, a dad, a brother, uh, and uh, what they all do is very separate than what I do. Uh, but you know, very typical, I guess, upbringing. I mean, there was, I guess, some negative things that happen as with everyone, but, um, not so atypical. Okay. Interesting. And now I do know this from, from previous podcasts, uh, your, your memory of being a child is as of, you know, a young age of five, you felt that something was not quite right within. Right. So my earliest memories in life of experiencing gender dysphoria, which is a mental health condition, uh, was probably around the age of five. I remember being in preschool and experiencing it. And, uh, you know, those feelings only intensified through my life. And people often find or they uh, sometimes disingenuously find some hypocrisy in my stance against children transitioning um, with the fact that I say that I experienced this condition at a young age. And for me, that has nothing to do with a child's ability to consent, whether or not they feel those emotions or that mental health condition. Um, so just the fact that I had gender dysphoria doesn't mean I could have consented to a transition underage, in my opinion, uh, which is, I believe, the correct opinion. <laughs> I, I don't, I, you know, I played the opening clip of your interview with, um, now I forgot his name, because I think it is the opinion of most reasonable people out there. Nobody, nobody cares what an adult does with their body, whether or not someone thinks at 20 you're enough of an adult to make that decision. Look, if you can go fight and die in the, in the, in the military, you can decide what you do with your own body. Right. But as a five-year-old, and it's, I mean, I feel empowered a little bit. I've said it before. It, gender dysphoria is a diagnosable clinical condition. It's not to make fun of it or anything. It's, it's what it is. It was but, in the DSM for decades. Uh, you know, this is not something new. This is not a new phenomenon. This is something that has been studied actually throughout history. Um, but it's only once things became very politically correct that they took it out of there, which I think actually harms trans people because it gives us less information to understand who and what we are, right? It, you know, I think of like the kids coming up now and the kids who, you know, they say that they're trans. I'm like, what does it even mean to them? Because for me, when I realized I was trans, it meant that I had a mental health condition and I sought help for that mental health condition. Uh, I don't know what trans means to Gen Z anymore because to me, it was something completely different. Um, yeah. well, let, me, let me ask you this. Like, so as a five-year-old, six-year-old, uh, I find it amazing that people actually have memories of that age, but what is the memory of what it felt like? What sort of behaviors were you engaging in? And how did your parents respond to that? Um, I mean, did you see a psychiatrist? Did you see a psychologist? That type of stuff? Oh, I had never communicated it to my parents at the time. Um, I didn't tell anyone in my personal life that I thought I was transgender until I think maybe like 18 or 19. Um, I just held those feelings in and I tried to, you know, understand them, which was pretty hard because it's their complex feelings. But the best way I can describe 
what it felt like at that very young age, if that's what you're asking, is that I felt an intense misalignment with the way I was being perceived by the world and my self-concept. Um, for whatever reason, at that age, at five, when you should really be not even thinking too deeply about much of anything, I was having like deep introspective thoughts about why I was uncomfortable with my birth name. And I would, I remember even going back, even at that young age and being like, but why would I feel that way? Sarah doesn't feel uncomfortable with her name, thinking of other kids in my class. You know, I don't know, Jonathan doesn't. Um, it was also more than that though. It was also the role that I was expected to sort of fit, you know, preschool is when you start seeing like the division of genders kind of more clearly, like preschool teachers start doing, you know, these are the boy activities, these are the girl ones. And I never aligned with the boy stuff. Um, and then as I got older, it turned into a body thing. So it wasn't just a, a a role or a societal role. It was like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with how my body is developing through puberty. Why is that bringing me to stress? This is something that's objectively or should be objectively a normal experience going through male puberty for a male. Uh, but for whatever reason, it was uh, unsettling. So what I always say is, you know, there's been studies that show that if left alone, the majority of children who experience gender dysphoria will grow out of those feelings by the time they reach the age of adulthood. For those people, it's incredibly important to not medically intervene because obviously there are, you know, irreversible things that take place during a transition, physically, emotionally, psychologically, your brain, everything. For the cases for which those feelings persist into adulthood, that and only that is when it's appropriate on a psychological level, on a medical level to medically intervene. And transition is far from perfect. I think that's there's a narrative that it's the correct decision for so many more people than it really is. I think it's right for a very small amount of people. Um, but I didn't know what else to do other than transition. Once I was in my adulthood, I'm like, wow, these feelings just don't go away. I've gone to therapy about it. I've talked about it and they just will not go away. Luckily for me, upon transitioning, all those feelings for the most part melted away. It's never completely curable, but I would say about 95% of it went away. You're going to say like people feel like you felt discomfort going through puberty and a lot of people yeah. are going to say like, like, Jesus, who doesn't, you know, boys get greasy skin, yeah. pimples, you start growing hair, your voice changes. I mean, some are going to say that it's, it's necessarily uncomfortable, even in the ordinary run of things. I mean, oh, it is for sure. What, what um, way was it, what way was it manifesting differently? Like, and people have to appreciate this when you, when it is a diagnosable or diagnosed mental condition, it, the discomfort materializes in more tangible ways than call me they or call me call me heat. Yes, yes. Um, so once I hit puberty and my body started developing, I completely agree that puberty is a very awkward, like uncomfortable and insecure time for almost everyone, if not everyone. Uh, but the ways in which it was affecting me was very much different than my peers. And looking back, it's, you know, it's, you're right. It's the greasy hair. It's the pimples, it's the acne. It's the, you know, the girls are getting taller before the boys and all that kind of stuff. And for me, it was specifically about my secondary sex characteristics coming in. And it was specifically about the fact that that, again, going back to that misalignment I felt when I was five, that it was taking me in the opposite direction of that. Um, and also it manifested just psychologically. People forget there's a huge psychological, um, part of gender dysphoria, which is like, I went years without leaving my house. 
I went because I just couldn't be seen. And that sounds so crazy and so intense to people who don't experience that. And that's why, you know, for me personally, not for every person and definitely not for children, transitioning was the right thing because the minute I did that, well, not the minute, but once I got deep enough into transitioning in the process, my entire life opened up. Um, so I think that's really the marker, right? Is that unfortunately a lot of people when they transition it's because they're misled and their life gets worse. My life only got better. So that's how I know it was right decision for me. Um, but unfortunately, there's just a lot of false narrative about transitioning, a lot of false narrative about what makes someone trans. Um, like we mentioned, having no diagnosis at all. Of, of course, you're going to have people detransitioning. You're going to have kids feeling like they ruined their lives and their body if you don't even have to diagnose it as a thing anymore. It, it just becomes plastic surgery at that point. That's if there's no mental health condition behind it, if it's not treating something, then it's literally just plastic surgery. And there's a reason why we make people wait until 18 for every other plastic surgery. You're a, a you're a, 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 I mean, I feel, I don't want to get in trouble, but you're a boy going through puberty. Are mm -hmm. you attracted to other men? Or are you attracted to other boys at this time? Uh, yeah, I was definitely attracted to males. Um, although I wasn't thinking too much about it. That's another um, sort of, interesting component to it is that like, I even knew other like homosexual males at the time, at that age, I had friends and they were all interested in homosexual males and I never was. Um, I was only interested in straight men. So that's kind of also another like hallmark of trans and yeah, it is what it is, but yeah. And, uh, and I'll, I'll ask, uh, perhaps uh, in one of, in one of the podcasts you're on, uh, you had mentioned some some childhood trauma now a, a lot uh -huh. of people associate um or not associate but i mean there is a lot of causal association or not anecdotal what's the word not necessarily causal but um when it, what's the word for goodness sake when it coordinates with i get people, what you're saying yeah uh, with 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 transgenderism later on uh, had you had any experience like that or is this the type of um, mental mental development that one could not blame on some form of trauma that could have triggered it. Well, it's interesting because, okay, so let's get into it. You have this whole like born this way versus not argument, right? And they do that with gay people as well. And I've always found that argument interesting because what is really the difference between maybe something happening around like four, three, four, five years old that makes you develop into a homosexual or a transsexual and being born that way. Cause you don't really have memories earlier than that anyways. Right. So it's functionally almost the same thing. But for me, the trauma that I experienced as a kid was actually, um, there's just a lot of like discord in my home. Although I feel like that's highly typical to see like your parents fight. Um, and I don't think that that makes someone trans or gay or anything like that. Um, and then also a lot of the trauma was, because I was, I know people are used to seeing these like TikTok trannies who are like big dudes with beards and like purple wigs, like saying they're going to like beat people up in the bathroom. And that's what people are used to saying. These like men who have literally no innate femininity. My feminine energy was so innate, even at five, that I was getting called the, it's on YouTube, right? The F. Oh, I don't care. Say, say whatever. Right. I, was, I was getting called a faggot at five before I knew what a faggot was and before mm -hmm. any of these other kids should have known what a faggot was, right? And so that's how apparent my like innate feminine femininity was. Um, not saying that made me a girl or made me a woman, but there's clearly feminine energy and masculine energy. Um, so 
a lot of the trauma was around bullying for me. Long story short, was around okay. like kids and families being crazy. <laughs> and how how did your parents? Like I, I was, I have my own anecdote. I used to be a counselor, and we we look, we could we could tell which kids were gonna. We knew that a, a certain kid was gonna be gay before they yeah. knew it. Look, yeah. they grow up to be happy gay adults. Yeah. And there obviously there's something that people can see and detect, you know, by and large. Uh, that goes for the parents as well. Now, when your parents are are having, you know, seeing you grow up, is it a source of is it a source of embarrassment? Is it a source of shame? Is it something that is just don't ask, don't tell in the house? Or do they support or do they support you nonetheless? Um, I think I think parents always know, right? I mean, they didn't know that it would end up meaning trans. I'm sure they always thought it meant a sexuality thing. Um, I remember like once I got to a certain age around like 12 or 13, I was like with my mom and she was like, so are you gay? Then it was like a, a funny icebreaker. And I was like, mom, stop, you know? Um, so yeah, I think they always knew, but my mom was always my biggest supporter. Uh, my dad, everything was fine. Um, we had a strained relationship when I became a teenager, but that also, again, I feel like is normal. Uh, yeah, they, they, I'm sure they knew something was up. Now you, you reminded me, it's not because of the swear word. You reminded me, I, I, I got carried away and didn't realize we need to go over to rumble. Everyone, I'm giving you the link there. We're going to end it on YouTube and we're going to carry this on on rumble and we're on locals as well. Um, okay. Ending it on YouTube. Now people have run over there. It's going to be fantastic. All right. So now here's a question people want to, I, I, I don't think. And anybody... by the way, can I just say really quick Please. before you ask anything, I just want to let you know, you can totally ask me like anything. One of my biggest pet peeves about the current climate surrounding trans stuff is that, and this is in my real life as well. I feel like not necessarily with you, but I feel like everyone sort of is always walking on eggshells with what to say to me and what to ask. And it's not that there aren't like inappropriate questions, but even in the incident that like we encountered one, it would not be a hostile engagement between us. Like I'm an open book about everything. Good. And I'm, I'm a nosy little bastard. So be, <laughs> I, be nosy I, as fuck. <laughs> well, so th that answers the question where people, it was correlation, causation versus correlation where, you know, w when it comes to the stats on, on trans people claiming to be transgender, there is a strong correlation between childhood abuse and, and oftentimes of a sexual nature, which is why, you know, if that existed in your childhood or not, it would be important for people to understand your uh, yeah, progression never, as a human. Never. That's one of the things that I'm quite happy about is that, you know, child molestation, pedophilia, child predation is such a like, the older I get, the more I realize how common it is. I meet so many people all the time that it has affected their lives. Um, and I'm very thankful that that's never been part of my story. And so now, um, are, are, as a teenager, and we're not, this is not all going to be about trans stuff anyhow. Um, as a teenager though, you know, this, you're feeling this distress. Um, mm -hmm. do you ask your parents to do any of this stuff or was it not even a discussion back <laughs> as, as, as little as 15 years ago? Um, well, I mean, trans people were around and, you know, it was sort of a known thing that, you know, on a very basic level, like there are men that become women and there are women that become men. And like, that was like people's extent of their knowledge. Like, yeah, some people do that. So I had that knowledge and that background knowledge. Um, but no, I never, I never reached out for help from anyone actually, other than talking to a few like school therapists. And the thing about the climate back then is that it wasn't like affirmative therapy like it's in every school right now it was very much like so why do you think you're feeling that way um do you think it might just be that you're gay uh do you think that it might just be that you're feminine um and granted it wasn't like a 
trying to rid me of the notion that I might be trans. It was more of just like, there are other things to explore as well. And if that's really how you feel, it's still considered an adult space. You had a few like cases out of like Sweden in the UK, you know, more progressive and they were a little further along. And it's like, oh, they have a trans kid. It was like a unicorn. Like that person got a sex change at 15, but it wasn't like now where it's this funnel of kids into big pharma lifetime memberships, you know? Well, and now actually on that issue, on that question, were you seeing a psychiatrist at any point prior to, let's say, late teens? Any point prior to late teens. Um, I, I guess, were, 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 were you one of the kids that were put on SSRIs, antidepressants, whatever it is? As, oh, as no. You know what's so funny about that? I feel very strongly about um, SSRIs and putting kids on meds unnecessarily. Because I think that the the child transition thing is an like, extreme example of the medicalization of children. But there are so many kids who are exhibiting very normal adolescent behaviors who are put on Adderall, which is meth, you know, or, you know, SSRIs. And I think it's very bad. So interesting little story about that. Um, I had mentioned earlier, there was a lot of like fighting in my childhood. So I wasn't the happiest kid, you know, I was getting bullied at home. Then I'd go home and watch my parents fight and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so my mom, even though she was doing her best and when you're an adult, you can look back at your parents' decisions and understand them more fully, I guess. Um, she took me to like a psychiatrist who was like, you know, my kid's very depressed all the time, can't focus, blah, blah, blah. And they tried to put me on, I think it was like Zoloft. They tried to diagnose me with OCD, ADHD, all this stuff, which I know now that I never had. I was just a sad kid because my life kind of sucked. Um, and so I would, I never went on the pills actually. This is how much of a little rebel I was as a like 12 year old, I would put the pills like under my tongue to show my mom like, yeah, I took it and then spit it out. Um, cause I just knew it was just BS. It's fine. Yeah. My, my, my growing up, my father, hell or high water. No one was taking any of these antidepressants, nothing. Yeah. And now I, now I genuinely appreciate that perspective. Um, so teenage leading up to transition, are you dressing as a, as a, as a woman or as a man, um, as a, as a teenager? Um, when I was a teenager, it's so funny how everything has changed so much with culture, but I was doing a lot of like, I was like a punk rock kid. So I'd go to like all these different shows and like, I would kind of like not gender bend, but I would like do kind of like gender fuck stuff where like, you know, I'd have like a purple mullet while like wear like leather outfits and shit like that like I was definitely experimenting with like makeup and looks and stuff like that but it's crazy how there was no like political ideology behind it now people do that and it's like this means I'm a third gender and like back then it just meant like I'm like a punk kid uh so that was like but also I think that the sort of like freedom of being able to go to hardcore shows you know, and sort of like experiment with my look definitely like helped me in the sense of like, I was able to sort of just like express myself more. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't have any political ideology as a teenager. I was just like a little like hood rat. <laughs> well, that, okay. So this is an interesting thing that's compared to now where you have, I mean, it's, it's what you do express opinions on politics and other stuff. Yeah. Um, you, you transition or you go through the surgery and the medication stuff at 20, you're in university before this. Yeah, I was going to school for computer science. And then I was so like annoyed with how lived out my college campus was and how I couldn't say anything. At the time, it was like a lot of like feminist discussions. And and they were saying things like, 
there's no difference between men and women except for cultural differences. And like my brain would be like, okay, so I'm like starting my transition here, literally taking medication to change. And I'm noticing the psychological changes from the hormones, by the way. Like I can feel my brain through the estrogen becoming more feminized and changing the way I see the world. And so I'm like, this is BS. This is literally... Of course, there are differences between men and women, the way they think, the way they behave, their desires, because I noticed all that changing in real time. And so I wanted to challenge that and I would do it and I would just get shut down by all the libs on my college campus. Um, you know, I remember my professor having us for our final paper in a, what class was it? Some sociology class, some arts class, whatever, that was like mandatory for me to take. We had to take a BuzzFeed, are you, how racist are you quiz? And that was like our final grade. And I remember writing a paper about how bullshit it was that this is not a real assignment. And I failed the class. And so I started a YouTube channel because I was like, I got to talk to someone about how crazy this is because I'm noticing insanity on my college campus. Put it up. And then the next day I woke up and there was like tens of thousands of views. And my life has been different ever since. May, may I play that video? I, 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 don't, I, yeah. I don't, I won't play too much of it. Where is it here? Not this one. Female privilege, anti-feminism. Yeah, do um, maybe like 15 seconds of it or like 10 <laughs> seconds. Ten, okay. For, I, okay. Someone's Watch. had some plastic surgery. In fact, I think that female <laughs> privilege is so much understated that some people believe that it doesn't even exist. Some people believe that men simply have benefits and women simply have burdens. I think this is completely false. And my life experiences, I think, are a good measure of that. <laughs> for the simple fact that I am a transgender woman. Now, for, I'll, I'll stop there. It's, it's I, I watched it. Philosophically, <laughs> not wrong. Conceptually, first of all, had you, I, I, had you had the the surgery at this point in time? Um, no, I think I was like two months on hormones at the time or something really, really early on like that. And then I just decided to start a YouTube channel like a crazy person. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so and, and I'm going to ask the totally indiscreet question, but that's two months into hormones. That's yeah. to say that in your, in your prior life, like this, I'm like asking someone a question before they converted to Judaism or something before <laughs> the, con before the conversion, uh, physically you were, you were petite. I know you're five, five, but you were already petite. What, what did you weigh before? Um, you know, I was actually way skinnier before because estrogen definitely adds a layer of fat onto your body. Um, and so that's how I know women are right when they say it's hard for them to lose weight. Um, yeah, I think I was like maybe like 115 pounds at that point, And now I'm probably like 130. I, I would never have asked, but thank you for telling me. <laughs> uh, so you, you start, I mean, you start putting your, your, your I call it anti-feminist or maybe just like philosophical essays in video format on YouTube as you're transitioning, as you're going through the, the hormones and then to the surgery. Yeah. <laughs> Let me, and now people are going to say, uh, it, it talk about privilege. You're a, you're a biological male <laughs> yeah. lecturing women on how, you know, how they have positive benefits. Um, I had some fucking nerve, huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> what, what was the feedback to this? I mean, I know people watch it where you, uh, the feedback comments? was overwhelmingly positive. And from what I remember in the video, I mean, obviously my understanding at that time was quite shallow. I'm going off of, you know, limited experience here. Uh, but honestly, I think a lot of what I said held up. I think that any ideology that poses like one group as the ultimate victim and one as the ultimate oppressor is inherently flawed. And I just kind of saw that at an early age, I guess. I was like, this doesn't make sense, especially, you know, I do have, you know, the experience of for half of my life, I walk through the world as a male and like 
I that's why when it comes to like men's rights activists and um, MGTOW and all those groups that talk about like, you know, the inequalities men face and how it's never an issue. It's like, I see that, you know, I, I understand that. Um, and then obviously I understand women's struggles. I would say that now, obviously I'll never know what it is to be a biological woman. I'll never be one. However, you know, after now almost a decade, because I've been on YouTube that long, um, since starting my transition and going on YouTube, um, because I walk through the world and I am perceived as a woman, there are certain parallels and experiences I definitely understand on a deeper level. So for example, I think in that video, I maybe even like scoffed at the idea. Now I completely reverse my um, <laughs> my so, perception of that because it's, you know, I moved to Hollywood wanted to fuck me, I guess. <laughs> well, no, hold on uh, a second. So I, get I, it now. I, I might have misread the way you meant that. So you, th you th beforehand you say catcalling is not an issue. Now as, you know, so I, you say not a biological woman, but nobody will be able to tell the difference. You get catcalled and you now, you now acknowledge it exists. Is there yeah. a part, is there a part of you that says, I, I don't, anyone take this as male chauvinism. Is there a part of you that says this is a sign of success as to how successfully I have um, transform my body from a biological male into what I am now. Um, no, there no, has to. I be. mean, I guess yeah. on a on a guess on like a surface level, it means that I am passing. But I don't know. It it makes me kind of look at men kind of icky. But that's not all men. That's a well, very no, specific I, type of man, you know. Like I, I could say, men. I, I say a lot. People are icky, and men yeah. materialize their ickiness in a different way than the women who are yes. icky materialize their ickiness. Um, yeah. But that's just one example, right, of like, I just have a bit of a deeper understanding. And then also the issues around like safety in women. So one of the things I'm sort of known for is like being one of the few public figure trans women who actually understand the women when they talk about like female spaces and like how those things need to be fucking segregated sometimes for the safety of women, because, you know, I've been in many situations where, you know, men around me were maybe putting me in a situation that wasn't so safe and that it had something to do with the fact that they were men and they perceived me as a woman. Uh, so I understand that in a certain way that I feel like maybe I wouldn't have if I had never transitioned or even at that very early point that you showed. Now, it, it, I forget which podcast is. It. I think it was it with the podcast with a guy with tattoos on his arms. It was a good podcast. Uh Tommy, maybe. He, he reminded me of uh, Alan Arkin a little bit, uh, a younger Alan Arkin. But it, 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 it was revolved around the he, she versus pronouns where you, it got me questioning, like, w when it came to Pat on the SNL skit or in life, when one is not sure as to, you know, what, what sex an individual is and why does it matter? Where people say, look, I identify as it. Why does it bother you to call me the way I'm telling you to call me? Right. And from my perspective, I'm saying, like, why does it bother me? Because a lot of people will have a lot less of a problem referring to you as a she and a her when talking about you to others than, say, for example, Dylan Mulvaney, just to name the, the biggest right. one. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is the difference? Because even I have that sentiment myself. And then I think, it, on the one hand, it, it has to reflect what my understanding is versus what reality actually is. If When it comes to misgendering Pat, the, the SNL skit, the reason why people are reluctant or want to know, you know, if, if Pat's a man or a woman is so that they don't insult Pat and also so that it can make it make sense in their own mind. Um, when, it, when it comes to you specifically, on the one hand, people do it as an act of antagonism, just to, you know, to make a point, you're a biological male that always refer to you as a he. Does it bother you? 
And what do you make of, of the other people who make little effort, use it as a political tool for controlling speech and thought? So, okay. So does it bother me that people on the internet will use he when tweeting at me or whatever? Not at all, because it's never happened in real life. <laughs> so like maybe the day it starts happening in real life, I'll be like shook by it, but it's clearly an online thing. That's one thing. The second thing is when it comes to misgendering and using pronouns, what people don't understand is there is a utilitarian purpose to pronouns. They are so politicized that people think that saying one thing or the other is making some sort of political statement, which is quite cringe really, because it shouldn't be. When you're with someone in person, and again, we're making the distinction between in person and online because that matters in this debate, because at the end of the day, we're all talking about people and like people exist outside of Twitter. Um, your brain makes a subconscious snap judgment about a person when they enter a room based on their secondary sex characteristics. Again, it's unconscious. You look at someone, your brain tells you how to refer to them. That's what you should always go with. That's going to be the safest bet, obviously, 99% of the time. And it just so happens that if you transition and you transition well, then you're going to get that. You're going to get those results, right? So I don't, I've, I've never been, since what? transitioning, I've never been in a room where someone inherently calls me male or, or he or anything like that. So it's kind of the same as an adoptive parent. They're not biologically that kid's parent. They adopted that kid. Is there really a reason to tell them, well, you're not a parent? It's like th if they're serving that role, then in real life, that's just what it is. It doesn't make them biologically the parent. And anyone saying sh the cash register at Target saying she to me, that's not her making sort of some sort of political statement that trans women are women or that I'm a biological woman. It's just about what she's seeing. Um, and so that's the inherent difference, I think, with Adila Mulvaney is uh, – I was going to preface this with saying not to be mean, but I don't really care, actually. Uh, Dylan does not give off feminine energy at all. Dylan does not look female at all. Um, Dylan also supports a lot of very harmful things like children transitioning. So I think a lot of people are more resistant because of that. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I think that 99% of people have never met a trans person or they don't know they've met a trans person. And so all their interactions are going to be online. Whereas at the end of the day, every conservative commentator that everyone in the chat or everyone watching this knows, I've been in rooms with all of them and not even the most hardcore, I will always say he to trans woman commentator has ever done that to me at birth because it doesn't make sense. Well, th th you, I think that's the number one point is most people have never met a trans person. If we're going to just put, give it that label or they've never known that they have like, we had one, not not a blood relative, but you know, th through uh, th indirect through marriage, like n nobody asked, and it, because it was not being used as a political tool for controlling yeah. speech and thought, um, and, and 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 that was it. I mean, if that's where the discussion always ended, then it would never be a uh, it would never be an issue. It might be interesting to understand a person, but other than that, you know, it, it's only when it's been weaponized for proving political points and proving and forcing compelling dominance, political dominance. Mm -hmm. And this is the question for you, Blair. People out there, we're going to look at you and say, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's a dude, I'm going to call him a he, and not understand that... 2016, it was 2016. I was going to say, if I, I, swear, I swear to you, I, I interviewed someone over the weekend who said, like, the shift in this madness started with Trump, and it's got to be like some MK Ultra stuff at a, at a global scale. It, 
whether or not it was Trump, it, uh, that's when I started noticing the world going batshit crazy as well. Well, I don't think that it was Trump per se, but I think it was the media's need to feed into the hysteria that Trump is attacking all these marginalized groups. And so if they can throw a group in there and they can add a phobia, right? Like I'm I'm sure that word existed, obviously, transphobia, but what sounds better? Trump is racist and homophobic or Trump is racist and homophobic and xenophobic and transphobic. They just want to add all that. And so they're sucking in all these groups of people. and because things got so politically correct, and they still are when it comes to this issue, really, um, there started being this denial that not everyone who's trans, who says they're trans really is. And what I mean by that is there once was a time, and it's so crazy when I talk about this because this is such niche information that you would never know from the outside. But as someone who was tuned into the trans community before it ever got politicized, once upon a time, there was a very strong push to separate cross-dressers and transsexuals, non-binaries and transsexuals, people who feel this way that day and that way, gender fluid, gender fought, all that. It was very known that that was different, and trans people were once upon a time very insulted when you would see a dude with a beard in a bathroom making a video about how he's a woman and deserves to be there. And people in the community would not only laugh at that, but they would actively shun it. And that was a healthier mindset because it kept it kept things specific. So if you were going to try to come at a trans person and use an example of a cross-dressing dude with a beard molesting women in a women's prison – that would never reflect on me at all because that's not a transsexual. We were able to say that, but now it's become an umbrella term to where anyone who feels any type of way, any day of the week, condition or not, because again, we said they, they removed the condition from the DSM-5, can claim trans and to tell them that they're not trans is an issue. So I've gotten a lot of flack from the community for gatekeeping and saying, no, that person's not trans. That person who is literally just acting out a fetish in a women's changing room why do I have to feel like that's trans? Because you guys made up a rule that anyone who says so makes it so. Okay, well, let's look at it. There's no medical transition present. It's clearly a sexual purpose, which is not what trans is at all. Trans is a gender identity issue, not a sexuality one. So if there's a man dressing in a wig because he's getting sexual kicks off of it, that's a fetish. That is not a a gender health condition. Um, But now you can't make those distinctions. And that's where everything went to shit because now every random creepy fuck that gets arrested, goes to a woman's prison and gets inmates pregnant, suddenly is deemed the same thing as me. And I just don't think that's cool. I'm just double checking. DSM version 2013 replaced gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria to avoid the stigma. So I think gender dysphoria is still in there, but they they substituted gender dysphoria uh, for gender identity disorder. But I, well, first of all, uh, uh, now that you mentioned it, you can't even refer to gender. You can't refer to transism, transgenderism as a dysphoria in the first place without getting called an ableist or all sorts of other names, even though I think it's the far more respectful way of of addressing it. Um, And I don't think anything's wrong with that. So the same people that will say we need to destigmatize, like you said, mental health and, you know, there shouldn't be these stigmas attached to having mental health conditions. Okay, then act like it. Why are you upset that people are calling gender dysphoria a mental health condition? It is. I don't see anything. I don't have any negative views of people who are autistic or suffer from depression or have social anxiety. These are all mental disorders. And 
if you want to compare a lot of these condor, uh, you know, disorders that people might, that I know have now in my life are far more debilitating than my level of gender dysphoria now, which is like 5% of what it used to be. So I don't feel like there should be a stigma against it. And I feel like recognizing that it is a mental health condition helps people understand what it is. If you take that away, then it just becomes a free for all. Well, you did make a very important distinction. I think it was in that prior podcast of the people who do it, uh, the people who, let's just say man to woman, uh, man dresses like a woman, but still is attracted to women versus uh, a man to woman who's attracted to men, but also, as you've pointed out now, not just not gay men, but straight men. Mm -hmm. Whereas the former group does it as, as either a fetish or as an act of dominance, whereas the second does it for reasons which you know had been recognized in medicine for for decades. Right. And a crucial distinction, I don't want you to lose your thought, but this is so important. Trans people like me are chemically castrated because I went through the process. So the idea that a chemically castrated homosexual male is the same threat level in a woman's space to a horned up, no transition man in a dress doesn't quite, doesn't quite match to me. So, um, you know, these men that do these fetish things, it's like, well, clearly you're not trans because you wouldn't even have that sex drive if you were trans. Yeah. I think people need to appreciate that. But regardless of what anybody feels about the, you know, what adults do to their body, even if it's with a doctor and they don't think they should do it, but that's the segue into actually the process itself. Uh, okay. uh, People don't understand it. I, I interviewed Tulip R. Ritchie. I don't know if you know who know yeah, who he is. Yeah, I interviewed him as well. Yeah, so and I sorry, I, I tried to catch up on as much of your backlog as I could, but it's it's it is. We all have a lot. Too, <laughs> yeah, we we all we've all created too much content. Um, he explained to me no idea. There was no explanation as to what's going to happen uh, in terms of healing time. And uh, Chloe Cole said the same thing when you did this. I mean, first of all, the idea you, you it's the ultimate step beyond all irreversible steps removing a functioning male genitalia did you have any you know were you warned about the, the the side effects were you given sort of enough information to make an enlightened decision so i have not had srs because i think that it is a false promise um so that is a step in my transition i have not taken because i believe that there's no way to get a functional vagina and so i would never want whatever it is they give from that, right? Um, my understanding from all the trans people I've met, which you got to remember is a bunch of people I've interviewed, detransitioners, transitioners, happy, unhappy, real life, just out. Every day I'm walking around, people walk up to me. I've, no one has more trans people come up to me on the street than me. Like I've met all of them. Uh, they say like black people all know each other. Trans people all know each other. Um, what I've understood is that the one of the main differences between a happy transition and an unhappy one, a sad story and a happy story, is that surgery. And most people I know who have had that surgery go into a very dark place because I think that it's so extreme. I think that it is sold as something it really is not. I think the complications are so much more common than people think. And I think that even when there are minimal or no complications, it is still a lifetime of very extreme maintenance. And we can get into that or not, but it's to me, I 
anyone can do whatever they want with their body. But for me personally, I would never do that one. And SRS, for those who don't know, is sexual reassignment surgery, which right. is removing the penis and creating a neo-vagina. Yes. Uh, I got asked the, uh, none of this is for any um, nefarious or, or, or like nosy purpose. Um, Ask anything. Well, what is, what is, chem I, I took for granted that that's, that you had gone through that step. What, so what does chemical castration then mean if you're left with, you're left with a, a genitalia? So this is very important. And this is another reason why I'm against um, underage transitioning. So when I say that I've been chemically castrated, it's really more of like a 90% chemical castration in the sense of um, I can't have kids. My sex drive is completely nuked, but that's not because of any surgery. That's because of the hormone replacement therapy. Because when you give a biological male estrogen, it's, like I said, tanks our sex drive. Um, it, we can get graphic. It, shrink, it, it, it shrinks that area. It makes it a lot less active, if that makes sense. Um, if it doesn't make sense, I can elaborate more, but I feel like that's probably, it's, it's not the same. You don't, there's not a breeze and it makes you get a boner or something, right? It's like, and that's what I mean with like these men who are enacting a fetish and not really transitioning is lumping those in with the same thing is dangerous because I remember what it was like to have a male sex drive as a teenager. The breeze blows the wrong way and you are horny physically and psychologically. Whereas for me now, I, I don't have much of any sex drive at all. I mean, it's there, but it's there on like a romantic level. So it's actually more similar to like a common female sexuality trait, which is to have to like be in love and have emotions for the gap for the man. Um, so that's what I mean. I can't have kids. Um, Ir irreversible to reserve this to an adult space, because if I was capable of making that money, which is when I started, you're not thinking about kids, you're thinking about what you want. And it's not that I would take anything back because like I said, I mean, if you would have known me before, they start freaking right? out, like make baby, make baby. Um, so you do this. This is very interesting. Well, let me, I, now I've just got to ask it because the, the question came to mind. Mm -hmm. So how does this work if you get into a relationship with somebody? I mean, this is a big, this is a big thing to let them know before intimacy occurs that if they're not even going to be expecting a neo-vagina, they're going to see something different. Well, one of the things that I benefit greatly from is that I am very public. So there is no man that interacts with me, um, really, that doesn't just because of the way my life is set up know who I am from the internet and like I'm so Googleable. it's not like anything's uh so I guess you know that is a question that I've, I've been in like long-term monogamous relationships so I don't have the most experience like going out on like blind dates and meeting guys off tinder that's never been my life uh but you know I mean yeah the, the thing about being a trans woman who is pre-op and so no sex change down there is that Actually, I believe, based on what I've seen in my own experience, that it's a lot easier to date pre-op than post-op because your dating pool changes from guys who are into trans women with male genitalia mm -hmm. to trans women with a neo-vagina. And if that's what you're attracted to, which is a feminine person with a vagina, you're probably going to just pick a biological woman. Whereas for me, it's like if someone's into what I am, then they kind of got the creme de la creme when they find me, if that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, here's the question, though. When did you become publicly, public enemy number one for the trans movement, or what is now currently known <laughs> as the most recent iteration of the trans movement? Oh, God. Um, right away. You know, I, I think that, unfortunately, 
the trans community really limits the borders of thought that you can have from within. So me having even slightly different views in them on anything is going to be seen as a huge crime. And I, a lot of trans people I know are, are even like way more so on the left and still get attacked because maybe they have like a more capitalist opinion than a communist one, you know? Um, so it was really minute one, but I feel as though it's quite hypocritical because for everything they say about how we need to have trans representation in this field and that field, and we need to have trans people on that show and that movie, do they really think that there's no benefit from having trans representation on the right at all? Like no one at the table talking about things, no one on a Viva Frey, you know, video talking about this stuff to a right wing audience, no one on Joe Rogan, no one, you know, so I'm okay with it because not to sound cocky or whatever, people who are ahead of their time are never understood. So I think one day the trans community will actually understand and value that I'm walking into rooms they either refuse to walk in or never could. You know, the fact that Joe Rogan and Alex Jones regularly go on air to defend me personally, but also like believe that trans can be a real thing specifically because of me, that that doesn't go without notice in my mind. I'm like, that's a really big deal. If I wasn't around, who would these people be talking positively about in the trans community at all? Dylan Mulvaney? Probably well, not. It is, it is the, it's not a, a contradiction or a hypocrisy, but there's an element of like, there's a libertarian's Every an adult do what you want with your body, and then when they come across someone like you, they'll say, "Well, I, I, I'm anti. You know, I'm going to call you a, a he, uh, even though, as far as it all goes, you exemplify what libertarian thought is about. Do you? I get to do what I want with my body. I'll find a doctor to do it, uh, but leave the kids alone. Whereas that that is where the the whole debate has gone now. Yeah, um, and I get it. I, I'm so disgusted by the kid stuff. I'm so disgusted that this process that I went through and those treatment that I sought has been politicized, used and abused and monetized. That's the big one. To such an extent that children's lives are being ruined by it. Children are being irreparably harmed by it. I'm disgusted by it. So anyone who uses that frame as, you know, the main window they look through when judging how they feel at the trans community, I don't blame them because I don't like it either. What I will say is, look at who is really pushing for the cho the children transitioning thing. A lot of trans people do, and I will not take that away. A lot of them do. But I would say nine times out of 10, just based on a sheer number of people, demographic, it's just like white, liberal moms with nothing better to do, tweeting, it's corporations, it's the pharmaceutical companies, it's politicians who just see an issue they can get behind and say the right things. So I think it's important to understand that even though it seems like it's the trans community really is not a monolith, um, especially when it comes to transsexuals, there's a big divide between like transgender people and transsexuals um, that's becoming more clear. So there's a lot more than just trans people pushing for the kid stuff and it's all disturbing, but uh, I mean, I, I've noticed it's uh, it's the trend that like once the corporations get their claws in it, yeah. and it, it becomes an industry and then it becomes corrupted. And then you have like, I, I don't think it's an accident that you have politicians pushing it at the same time. It's got, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's got taken over by the medical profession. It's like yeah. a lot of people are making a lot of money. I've noticed, look, I've noticed the same thing in terms of it, like nine out of 10 being 
white liberals, but that might just be demographics where you're dealing with a small community of trans people in the first place. So majority of the people who want to show that they're tolerant are going to be of that demographic. And it sucks because they clearly are just kind of treating it like a gay thing. Like, you know, back in the day, the argument was like, let them be gay. Who are they hurting? And you know what? Like those people were right. It's like, yeah, some people are fucking gay. Get over it. They're not right with the trans kid thing because it's a medicalization occurring, a lifelong medicalization, irreparable harm, all the things we've said during this hour. But, you know, it's very different. And so for these these liberals who don't even know what they're talking about to spearhead this issue and not know the damage they're causing is messed up. How um, how real does the does the online what do they call it? Online beef between you and the I don't need to name all the names, but how real does that beef get in real life? Uh, like the, the, the fighting or the, uh, the fighting among the, the different voices, or at least your voice oh. and then the, the bulk of the other voice. Oh, you mean like other commentators and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, I'd say like the more, the more aggressive, non, the, the more aggressive people who might be seeming to claim trans for a trend and not for an actual. Oh, identity. Oh. oh, you know, that has manifested throughout my career in really scary ways. Um, you know, I've been doxxed every place I've lived my entire career. And I've moved a lot, <laughs> moved across the state a few times, different places. Um, you know, I've had the FBI in contact with me over, you know, legitimate threats that I didn't even know about. It's like them hitting me up like, hey, did you know? <laughs> um, you know, but it's so funny because I never get any hate in real life in terms of like someone coming up to me and saying something. It's always very positive, especially here in Austin, Texas. I feel like much different than LA. Like I'm a lot more um, respected here because it's a different climate. Uh, but you know, it, it it can get scary. But that's why I have hella guns. So. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. Now, were you were your parents uh, right leaning conservative ish, or were they left leaning Californians? Um, well, what's interesting is like people don't know this, but I grew up in Northern California. Which, if you've never been in Northern California, especially back the time I grew up, that's like Kansas. Like it's very Republican. It's very red up there. Um, so my dad was definitely more, uh, conservative. My mom was not super political, but like, you know, socially liberal. Um, but you know, I got into guns once I came to Texas cause I realized there's so much more I could do with them. There's so many different types of guns I could own. And I just got a thing for it and it's really fun. And it's also very empowering to know that, you know, like you said, how real does the beef go with, with other people in the community? You know, you can dox me and you can, and you can threaten me, but I have, I won't say how many guns I have, but I can't count them on two hands. I'll, I'll say, say that. I'll say I'm from Canada where you don't mention that you own a gun because you don't want people breaking down your door to steal oh. your gun because they're, they're in such hot demand in Canada for the black market. Yeah. Um, uh, all right. And so now, uh, politically speaking, I mean, how active are you going to, how active are you uh, in terms of trying to change philosophy, change ideology to, to move this stuff away from the kids um, to enact like proper policy? Yeah. So... I actually steer clear. I've had a lot of um, offers and invitations to participate in different things to get legislature moved and and all that. But for me, I just like to run my mouth on my social media. And I feel like that in turn has shifted the needle a lot. You know, I was really the first person to even talk about detransitioner stuff and show that that can get views on YouTube. Um, since then, everyone and their mother has done detrans stuff. But, you know, my oldest videos are about how children transitioning is wrong and detransitioners need to be heard. And that was all before it was 
anything close to a national conversation. So, you know, I think people are listening. You know, I had sort of like a crazy moment a couple weeks ago when uh, my friend Michael Malice texted me and he's like, hey, I'm with Roseanne and she's a really huge fan of you. She's been watching you for years. I'm like, you really never know who's watching. So in my mind, I know politicians are watching me. And um, if I planted that seed in any of their minds to protect children, which I know I have, then that's my job. I like to try to change people's hearts and minds, especially within the trans community and within the LGBT community, because I feel like that's what's really going to turn things around is us realizing from within that there's been some oversteps and that it's not too late to to take those steps back, no matter how ugly it gets. Well, this is actually like one of the conservative side points of the argument is that if women don't stand up for women's rights against, you know, the Leah Thomases in, in, in competitive sports, then tough noogies, you know, it's, it's their yeah. battle to lose. Um, on the one hand, you're... There are a million different people coming from a million different perspectives. And oftentimes those perspectives are extremely intense. Oftentimes they're completely overblown. Um, and oftentimes they have valid points. Uh, and so my thing is like, I see so much truth in all these perspectives. So when I look at, you know, what's known as sort of like the rad femme or the turf side of, of social media. Trans-exclusionary um, radical feminist. That is right, basically that's what they're called. A, a lesbian. Is that a lesbian who doesn't want to engage um, with it? Or is it, is it women who do women who are, are asserting women's rights? I think it's just in layman's terms, like women in general, not lesbians or straight, just all women um, who subscribe to a specific subset of feminism that sees trans women as oppressing women and trans ideology as oppressing women. Um and so when I see a lot of the points they make about, you know, women's sports and, uh, you know, Leah Thomas in the in the locker room or um, there was just a, all the ways in which the ideology does overstep and does go into being harmful for women, I see their points. I can't pretend not to because I don't want to be in a bathroom with half these motherfuckers that come up on TikTok talking about I need to be in this room. It's like, no. Um, you know, Leah Thomas should not be in a women's changing room. No, you shouldn't have a penis visible to women around you who did not ask for that or consent to that. Um, what trans women and women's sports is wrong. And so when they say that kind of stuff, am I supposed to just, you know, coming from the trans perspective, they think I should just, I don't know, pretend that I don't see a valid point with all of that because I do, because well, I also live in the real world, right? I'm not just in these like trans chat rooms and trans reddits 24 seven, like I'm around real people every day, all day. And I understand. Um, yeah. Now, I, and I, I know you're going to have a good answer to this because I know what your answer is, but I've got to ask it. People are going to accuse you of let's call it trans elitism in that. Okay. You, you get to, you get to, you know, use the, the women's room and this, and that, because you've, you've, you've passed. I hate the term. I hate the word, but that's, you know, the, you, you pass. Whereas, you know, it's harder for a Leah Thomas. It's harder for a Dylan. It's harder for the guy who who just joined that that women's frat in that university. I forget what it was, and so they're gonna say, "Well, you're you're just you're trying to make rules that benefit you, but not extending them to to the others." Well, I would say that life isn't fair, and it's not as if I got to the point of passing by just twiddling my thumbs and saying I wanted it to be so. I worked extremely hard. I saved up a lot of money to get the corrective surgeries that I wanted. I 
did the work, I set myself on a path and I got there, which is what a lot of people in this day and age don't want to do. And that's even trans aside, people don't want to work for what they want. Uh, so is it elitism or is it just acknowledging the reality of if I go into a men's restroom, a commotion occurs. If I go into a women's restroom, no one blinks. That's the reality of it. So if you're going into a women's room and people and women are visibly afraid of you, you shouldn't be there. And with the Leah Thomas thing, I also think there's a big difference between a women's changing room for which Leah and the women are nude around each other and like a bathroom with like closed stalls. Right. So it's like, there's levels to it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting world and I, I get all the perspective, but what's really sad is that none of this trans people have been around forever and none of this was a thing until recently. And that's because of the left starting it and now the right's picking it up and they're not even wrong to pick it up. It's just, it's just, I think right now we're in this time period of figuring it out, figuring out how to integrate trans people into society where it's right to integrate them, where it's not right. Um, like for example, very real world example for me, I would never, ever, ever go into a women's like locker room public shower, anywhere where I'm expected to unrobe or they are. That's different to me than like I'm in Target and I have to pee and it's like a bathroom, you know? So I think that there's just, it's those literal examples people need to acknowledge because I think people just, they either take one thing and run with it or they take one thing and throw it all away, right? Which is like, the trans people will say, well, bathrooms are fine. So that means women's locker rooms are fine and we can have our dicks out around women. And it's like, that's not what that means. And how dare you take an in thing? Because no one had an issue with bathrooms until now we are in a changing room. You know, I mean, I'd say like no one had an issue with drag shows in my life. Gays can get married is rubbing it in the face of biblical traditional marriage. I say none, that's still not analogous because it's two adults among yeah. themselves doing what they want. This becomes the issue when it's adults effectively grooming kids, whether they like to say that that's what they're doing or not. Um, Absolutely. The, and if you've ever question. been to a drag show, you know that 90% of the time it's completely inappropriate for kids. And, the, and liberals will say, why? It's just a man in a dress. It's like, okay, so have you ever actually been to one? Because it's not just a man in a dress. You're not just looking at an SNL skit. It's a very sexual atmosphere. The humor that's made is very, very sexual. Um, the outfits often are not just a dress. It's often like very, very revealing. And the gyration, just, the gyration is yeah. provocative. It's like, it's not, it, someone says, well, you know, like back in the older days in the 1910s, they, you know, men dressed as women in movies. This was, it's fundamentally supposed to be sexual that's why it was you know it's a it's a strip club and there's nothing wrong with that either but you don't bring kids to strip clubs and call them dance workers and have strip club reading hour uh right and it's like it's one of the problems with that is maybe i'll get some flack for saying this i don't give a fuck um a lot of gay people and lesbian people are very childless in their lives not all of them some of them have families and kids and all that but by and large and if you know the community, you know this. Most of them don't have kids. Most of them don't hang out around kids. Most of them don't have kids in a regular part of their life. A lot of um, gay and lesbian people are disconnected from their families. So they're not seeing like their younger cousins on Easter. You know, they're not going to family functions. And that's sad to be disconnected from your family, but it, it's a 
and it's objective reality for a lot of gay people. And so when they are defending um, child drag shows and children being at drag shows, oftentimes it comes from a place of not really understanding children in the same way that straight people or just people who are around children regularly would understand them and their innocence, right? And so it's not even that they're trying to like defile these child, children's innocence. It's that they kind of forget how innocent kids truly are. Um, does that make sense? It's like you're well, not around kids, so you don't know the threshold for what's appropriate. I'll tell you, it, it may, without commenting on the observation, I, I'm not uh, attached to any community enough to know, but I, I can I can relate it to uncles that I've had who'd never had kids, not because they were gay, but yes, their behavior was oftentimes wildly inappropriate for kids, yeah. either reckless and or or sense of humor is not you know uh, mm -hmm. age appropriate. You got to put the earmuffs on. It's, it's an interesting observation, um, and it's true because if you think that you know. There was this drag show over December. It was one of the ones that went the most viral. And it was in, like the Christmas Texas, one. Oh, it, it was in Texas. Was this the one where it says yes. uh, it, it's not going to lick itself in the background? Um, it's not that specific one, but it's it was like the Christmas themed one where they had like the naked men dancers and like the. All right. It was a very intense one. The <laughs> yep. Long story short. And um, I had supporters that were at this show because now people now people are going to them to see what's going on. And I had supporters who were gay at the show because they genuinely were fans of those drag queens. They were from RuPaul's Drag Race, a very popular show. And they were like, okay, being here has really like red pulled me on this thing because there are like seven-year-olds while the adults are on stage talking about sucking cock and doing anal. And all the moms in the crowd are just like mesmerized by these drag queens and see nothing wrong with it. And it's like, wow, you know, sometimes it's that night and day of what's appropriate and what isn't. But people are very disconnected from children in that community. So they don't really know. It's not even that they're even trying necessarily. Some of them are, but trying to like be inappropriate. They just are because they're so childless. Very interesting. Um, if I, if I may, I don't want to push my luck in terms of how long you're going to stay. I just we want to bring a few up... more minutes. I don't care. I'm good. Okay, good here. I'll bring up a couple. There's some questions in rumble. These things called rumble rants are like super chats on the rumble side. Blair, this is from TZ Burton. Well, let's start from the bottom. Uh, keep fighting mandatory carry. He's a, a regular on the channel. D Johnson or D.I. Johnson is now a monthly supporter. And he says, this is an amazing discussion. Thank you both. Thank you, Johnson. Uh, occupant Blair, did the Dave Rubin guys, guys, guys debate change your opinion <laughs> about the size in the culture war? What, what is the guys, guys, guys debate for those who don't know? Uh, so back in the day, this was 2017. This was at the start of my career. I had, um, done an appearance on the Rubin Report in which I debated Candace Owens and it just got really ugly. Um, and so the guys, guys, guys thing was actually like a song, a really funny song that this YouTuber, Rucka Rucka Ali, made like parodying the debate because it was just like a chaotic, crazy video. Um, did it change my opinions on the sides of the culture war? Um, No, no. If If what they mean is, did it shift my like view that maybe like Republicans or conservatives are like my friend. I've never thought I've never been a tribal being, you know, and people might find contradiction with that because I vote Republican, but you got to vote some way. And all of us are just making, you know, the best decisions we can with how we vote in the roughest sort of decision making that we can. And for me, after seeing everything that happened during COVID with, you know, the tyranny that was enacted through that um, after living in a blue state in a blue city and then moving to Texas, it's night and day how Republicans, Democrats run cities and government. So that to me matters more than trans stuff. Um, 
but yeah, I think people, maybe sometimes I'm under this illusion that like, I think Republicans and conservatives are just so awesome and they're all my friend. And then I'm like heartbroken when they are like shitty towards me. And it's like, I'm fully aware most people are shitty and most people fall into either liberal or, or Republican. I don't care. I, I've, I've, I've just, I've still found that even that you get hate on both sides, um, it still seems to be more well-reasoned hate coming on the right than oh, the left. Oh yeah, I will say that. I often say this. So I get it from both sides, of course. And by the way, anyone who's not a binary thinker is going to get hate from both sides. It's like, if you're not a black and white thinking person, then both sides at some point are going to get mad at you. But I often say, it's like, yeah, the, you know, conservatives will sometimes call me a man, boo-hoo. The liberals were like threatened to kill me. <laughs> the liberals were like threatened to come to my house and <laughs> dox me. And, you know, it's it's a bit different the way they um, exemplify their hatred. <laughs> That's good. Um, hold on. I had a thought. I forgot it. I'll be back. I'll be back with that in a second. There's two okay. more, two more questions here. One was, um, this is awesome stuff. Nike seven. T thank you very much. And TZ Burton Blair, my wife's niece knew he was gay at a five years of age. He transitioned after 18 years old with support of her parents and after counseling. Um, I guess the, I mean, here's when I interviewed Richie and I guess you, you probably had the same discussion. Um, there's, there's a, a, a it's, there's a regret that I don't know how someone comes to live with, but Richie has, if, if anybody looks like they're doing it and later on, like, is this, I, I can't, you know, this, there's irreversible decisions. And I guess in some ways, some of this is reversible, but. No, you know, I no one's psychic. So who I'm going to be at 60 is not who I am at 29. Um, but kind of like I said earlier, to me, it's very clear. And when I listen to a lot of detransition stories, for which I've interviewed a lot of them, Richie included, um, the reasons why a lot of those individuals chose to transition are different than mine. So a lot of them were running from their homosexuality. A lot of them felt, and this is what actually, I would say all of them have said to me is that they felt a deep shame about being gay or being a lesbian. And so they felt it would be easier to be a straight woman or a straight man rather than a gay man or a gay woman. Um, that to me was never a thing. Um, again, a lot of them make, and it's to no fault of their own because they are lied to so much by the medical industry, but a lot of them don't have necessarily the foresight to know about certain surgeries that this could be a disaster. So the SRS one, the genital change, for me, that always seemed like common sense that that would be a huge mistake and that that would F me up for life. And a lot of these detransitioners do go through with that one. And it's not to say they were dumb for that decision. It's not to say that they should have known better because they were again lied to. But a lot of the things, my story is just very different than theirs. And I've never felt any regret. And like I said earlier, my life before I transitioned I always tell people, I wish you would have been able to meet me before that. I was a disaster. I was not a functioning member of society. I was not participating in anything. I couldn't get a job. I couldn't leave my house. And then I was like a light switch when I transitioned and I, everything got great. So to me, if your life gets worse afterwards, that's the telltale sign. And uh, look, thank you for doing this. Now, what do you have on the horizon, Blair? Like, first of all, where can people find you? Not that they need to know, but where can they find you? And what do you have on the horizon? 
you can find me on YouTube. You can find me on my podcast channel, The Blair White Project. Uh, I'm writing a book. I am just trying to elevate everything that I do, but also I've never taken what I do super seriously. So whatever happens or doesn't happen, it is what it is. Maybe next week I'll be on this show or that show. Who knows? Okay. Amazing. Um, let me see if I didn't forget. Oh, Blair, let me just, if I may, let me see here. If I have any questions in the locals, we have a-, a, a Oh a yeah, let's do it. Okay, here. I'm going to go to Tim, these things here. Okay. Please be sure to ask Blair what her favorite thing about Michael Malice is. This is from N. Spence. Michael Malice is a good person in real life, right? He's not, he's not, he's a good person. He's my best friend. Okay. He, he is absolutely like, that's his role in my life is like best friend. Um, talk every day. Talk way too much, honestly. Um, see him every other few days. Uh, I guess my favorite thing about Michael is that he understands me in a way that most people don't. We have somewhat similar lives in the sense that we do sort of similar things. Um, and he, I guess my favorite thing is he has taken the effort to really get to know who I am with all the sort of background noise set aside, the trans stuff, the YouTuber stuff, like whatever narrative there is in the public about me. Uh, he like set all that aside and was like, let me get to know Blair. And that's how we became best friends. So just how insightful he is and how much he cares. And, and Rockahora says, can you ask Blair if Malice is as big of a simp for her as he appears on screen? Why is it all about Michael? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. And Rockahora so says, is in all seriousness, uh, it says, I truly respect the courage to be real voice uh, for people with a genuine psychological physical disconnect in uh, today. Uh, it's used as a prop for crazy people, virtue signaling, instead of an indication that they might be in need of some psychiatric counseling or at least someone to say, let's explore feelings before we start lopping off body parts. Um, and then read. Scuba Jim says, I see an issue that the definition of trans is so broad as to be almost mm -hmm. meaningless, not to diminish Blair. No, I, flip side, I think... I think that's the problem is, is yes. it, it once upon a time had a clinical definition and now it's got a social clickish one. Like this is like, it's, it, it will go down as, as the trend of goth, except it's going to yeah. leave much more scars and it's going to go down. Like yeah. how people view lobotomy in my view, I might be wrong. Yeah. This is why, um, spoiler alert, my next main channel video is actually going to be called I'm not transgender, which is going to be, Appears to be clickbait, ha ha ha, but actually it's not because I believe that people like me should be calling ourselves transsexuals. I think we have to take it back old school, we have to take it back to what it really is, which is a condition. Um, I think transgender is clearly an ideology. I think it's clearly an umbrella term that means everything and nothing at the same time. And I just don't identify with it. So I'm actually going to start saying transsexual instead because I think that that is more distinct and it separates me from the fucking crazies at least that type of crazy because let's be clear being me is crazy too i mean i'm not gonna act like being a tranny isn't fucking nuts but there's also levels to being crazy right like if you can't function within society that's like crazy crazy <laughs> i'll tell you this after th I, I did practice law for close to 13 years uh mm -hmm. er everybody's crazy on a spectrum and it's the oh, question for of sure. functional destructive self-destructive destructive of others or just you know fun and um yeah. Blair, this has been amazing. Uh, if if you may be so kind, let's do it again at some point in the future. Yeah. But thank you very much for doing this. Um, everyone in the chat, thank you all. I'm going to post the entire thing on YouTube tomorrow. Um, okay, this cool. is just the exclusive part on, on Rumble. Blair, stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes. Everyone in the chat, thank you. And Blair, I will link all your stuff in there. Um, and for all the people who had not negative comments, I think a lot of people did not know 
who you were before getting started. There are some comments that said, you'll watch this or you won't, and you'll learn or you won't. Thank you for shedding some light on this. It's, it's been fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.